Anonymous Eskimo, episode 113. Subject warning. This episode includes discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance misuse, and self-harm. These topics can be difficult to discuss, but talking about them helps recuse the stigma around the subject matter and encourages help-seeking. If you are feeling overwhelmed or in crisis, please call the care line at 1-877-266-4357. Again, that's 1-877-266-HELP or dial 988 to be connected to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Welcome to the Anonymous Eskimo Podcast, where my guests share their stories about mental health, sobriety, recovery, and hope for people still struggling with mental health issues, alcohol, and drug addiction. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please visit my website at anonymouseskimo.com. That's www.anonymouseskimo.com. And click on the donate button. There, you have three different options to donate. First, you can donate directly through PayPal. Second, you can make a one-time donation through Buy Me a Coffee. And third, you can support the podcast by clicking on the store button, where you can get anonymous Eskimo merch. While you're visiting my website, please take some time to rate this podcast and write a review. Recording from Denina Land, I'm your host, Ralph Sara. On today's show, I have Rebecca Michael. Rebecca is Choctaw. She's originally from Sitka, Alaska, but now resides in North Carolina. Rebecca is an indigenous dog breeder where she's working to preserve the Indian dogs of Turtle Island with a mission through Indian traditions and blessings to make medicine dogs that will bring healing into many homes across this land. She's partnered with three other tribal breeders across Turtle Island. Rebecca has been sober for four years. And on this show... Rebecca courageously shares her story for those who are still struggling. So guys, please help me welcome Rebecca Michael. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I ran across a post that you posted about sobriety. So I decided to reach out and ask you if you'd like to share your story. Well, I'm happy to do that. And I have to say, I was a little bit surprised when I heard from you, because when I looked at your podcast, you know, I think we addicts tend to get that imposter syndrome where we think, 
oh, who am I? I shouldn't be doing anything like this. And and so I saw some of the people who you've had on your podcast. And I my first thought was, I have no business doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just a little a little person, you know, but I but, you know, those are the thoughts that we don't listen to. Right. So, I, you know, that was what told me, yes, this is exactly what I should do. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. And I have um, so many different types of people that have so many different stories of how they um, achieve sobriety or or deal with mental health or, you know, mm-hmm. um, how they're doing their recovery. It's everybody is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's honestly sharing the recovery from so many points of view, I think, is what can especially help the people who are struggling, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, Rebecca, can you go ahead and introduce yourself so the listeners can get to know you, please? Sure. Um, so I'm Rebecca. I go by Becky and um, or the elders call me Becky girl. <laughs> And um, I, I am 40 years old. You're going to love this. I'm from Sitka, Alaska. What? (laughs) Yes. That's why I was excited when I saw, you know, that you were from, are you from Bethel? Yeah, from Bethel. Yeah. So, yeah. So I got really excited because, um, so I'll, I'm a Choctaw Indian. Um, we're Choctaw of Oklahoma. Um, but it's a crazy story how I ended up in Alaska. But I'm, you know, I'm a, a born and raised. So um, my my mother got married to a guy after my dad is the Choctaw. And after um, my parents split up when I um, when I was pretty young. And um, so anyway, um, we ended out um, being uh, Alaskans. Um, so not born and raised, but, you know, I say that because it's like, I don't remember anything else. Yeah. So I was born in California, um, but I moved to Alaska when I was so young. And so um, lived there my entire life. Um, and that was such a great place to grow up. And I, I told my husband the other day, um, I would like to die there. So <laughs> I, not to be dark, but, you know, I said we need to plan on getting up there sometime in the next 15 years because that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> so I have a deep love for that place. And um, that was, you know, the first place where I learned um, so many important things that um, would help me in my life today. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's me. That's where I grew up. That's a little bit about me after I, I, um, turned 18. Um, I left the Island, um, to go pursue college. And pretty shortly after that, I I gave up on that and joined the military because I had gotten married at 18 And so um, a lot of those marriages when you're young like that don't work out. And so I had a son before we got divorced. And so I joined the army because I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to take care of my kiddo, you know. And so um, I wanted a way to be able to provide for him. And so I joined the military and that kind of took me all over the world and doing a bunch of crazy things. And that was kind of the, I guess, the start of 
the issues with addiction for me. Oh, so you were in the military. Mm -hmm. I was a soldier. Thank you for your service. My pleasure. And when you when you joined the military, you said that's when your um, your addiction started. Can you let everybody know what your life was like before um, and up to your sobriety and why you chose to get sober? Yes, yes. So I've done so much work on myself and just trying to learn all the reasons that I I chose to go down that dark path. And, and, you know, there's oftentimes there will be a certain time period or an event in your life that kind of is the catalyst that makes you go that way. But as we know, there are many things that usually lead up to that point. And so for me, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up with my dad. Um, there's my, now my grandparents, my Choctaw grandparents were deeply involved in my life. And I just, I'm to this day so thankful for that because I got so much of my culture from them that I wouldn't have gotten because I didn't have my father. But, you know, children who grow up without their fathers, they face a lot of issues. And so, you know, that's something that that our community is is often hit with, you know, heavily. And it's very devastating. And so growing up that way and then having a stepfather that was very abusive to me and to my siblings, you know, I think that that did a lot of things to pave the way for me to make different choices when I got older. And being that my father is an alcoholic and um, I have lots of other people in my family who are alcoholics, drug addicts, I was terrified to pick anything up. I, I would not. I would not because I had seen what it had done to my family. And so for a long time, until I was 23 years old, I never touched anything. And not a lot of people, you know, can say that. A lot of people went through it when they were teenagers, but um, I was terrified of it. But uh, my time in the army changed that. And, you know, at first I started, I started drinking with my friends and it was mostly peer pressure. You know, I didn't really want to, but when you're in the army and you're stateside, everybody's out on the weekend and it's, it's the party life, you know, it's the party life. And a lot of times you're young and you have a lot of money for how old you are and Sometimes people, when they're young and they're not emotionally mature, they don't know how to be responsible with their money. And that was definitely me. So I was out there partying, doing all this, you know, crazy stuff with my money. And I had enough, you know, I had enough of it at the time to supply that lifestyle for a while. Um, and so I got accustomed to going out and and just partying it up every Friday, every Saturday. And um, looking back, I can think of it now, even the very first time that I ever tried alcohol, 
I became so intoxicated that I got sick, you know, and I still, I, I didn't stop. I couldn't stop. And so it was from the very first time and it would go like that every single time that I would drink. And, and I would think sometimes I would get in the car and I would drive, drive back to my home. And I would realize in the morning, I, I, I don't even remember going home. You know, there was one time that I left my keys in the front door of my house. And I guess I walked inside my house, left the door open and, you know, went to bed. So somebody could have come inside my home at any time during the night. I would have been passed out and, you know, things like that that happen. And, you know, normal people, when that kind of stuff happens to them, they think, man, I better slow my roll, you know, but I didn't think that. I just thought, oh, well, it's okay, you know, nothing happened. So <laughs> I would laugh about it, you know, whatever. Well, I eventually got deployed to Iraq. And when when I went to Iraq, that was what really changed changed everything for me. And so I started, you know, getting really depressed because of some of the stuff that I saw over there. And also the way that you live over there, you're barely sleeping, you're not eating very much. Um, you know, the food isn't good quality and you're working every single day. So you're running your body on all cylinders and you're not giving back very much to your body. And so then when you put a strain of mental health on top of that. It's a recipe for disaster. I ended out getting injured in an IED accident. And this was about eight weeks before I was set to return home. And so I had to go home early. And when I went when I went home, that that was a depressing thing in and of itself, as hard as that may be to understand, because the camaraderie that you build with the people that you go there with, it's stronger than the bond you'll share with your your blood family a lot of times. And so I felt, you know, I've left my family behind. I wasn't going to be there when my unit got back. Um, you know, there was nobody there to welcome me when I got home. You know, I just, I came back and I had to be seeing a bunch of doctors and, and doing a bunch of things. And anyway, I needed pain medication. And I had to have that for a while. And that stuff, I mean, when I say it's poison, that doesn't even begin to touch it. And that was really what led me into the dark spiral. The It was the opiates, and that was kind of the start of everything. But that opened the door for me to start using other things. And, you know, basically, when, when I came home, you know, they told me my head injury was so significant that I wasn't going to be able to deploy again because... If I ever hit my head again, it, it could potentially kill me. Mm. And so they said, you know, well, you're going to have to, you're, 
I mean, you're going to have to get out. If you can't deploy, we can't use you. And so I, at the time, I wanted to do a career because for me, I guess I felt at that point in my life that I did not feel that I was capable of achieving anything, any kind of greatness without the help of the army. But when I went into the army, it gave me the ability to be successful by doing just a few things. You know, I just had to wear the right uniform. I had to show up at the right place at the right time and and just, you know, follow orders and I could excel. And so I was in this mindset that I would not be able to excel anywhere else. So it really devastated me. And when you're when you're in your 20s, you know, your brain is still developing. And I thought to myself, this is this is the end for me. And it really felt that that way, you know, and it was dark. It was so dark. And I wanted to die. I can't even explain it. And so I laid in bed, you know, for days, not wanting to get up, not having the energy to get up. And, you know, I think that it's really important that people who are struggling with addictions, you know, to understand that um, it's not just, you know, it's not just the substances. There's stuff that's wrong in your brain. There's things that, that are going wrong. And, that, you know, this is how it manifested itself at first. And I didn't see the signs. And of course, because I was a soldier, I was too proud to ask anyone for help. And I was too proud to say, I'm struggling here. I'm weak. I don't know what to do. And so as lost as I felt, as sad and hopeless as I felt, I told nobody. And so I would stop right there and say that's one of the most important things that, that I could share with anyone who's listening. Don't, don't suffer alone. Don't suffer silently. I, I really liked when I saw when I looked up your podcast and I saw that it says recover out loud. And that's part of what I try to live today because I think if I knew that I could reach out to somebody, if I felt that that was an option for me, it may have gone a different way for me. So, you know, people should always, always feel that, you know, don't ever be silent about uh, what you're going through, reach for somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, that is sometimes a key to getting the help that you need. You don't get anything that you don't ask for. So just say something to somebody. And so anyway, this is, this is kind of when it really started to get bad for me. And so I was talking to some friends of mine at one point and they started suggesting to me, they said, well, you know, you probably just need to get high or something. You know, they said, mm. you'll feel better. And at that point, you know, if somebody had said that to me even six months before, I would have said, mm, 
yeah, okay, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. But at that point, I didn't care anymore. I did not care. And, and so I said, okay, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And so this is when I first started bringing in the hard stuff, the, the psychedelics, the ecstasy, um, the things that really, really alter your mood. And yes, the stuff made me feel like I could be part of whatever I was in because when I, when I wasn't, when I wasn't high, I felt like I was just floating through life. I was so dissociated. I, I didn't know how to interact with people. I didn't feel right. I did not realize at the time that I was, what I was experiencing was post-traumatic stress disorder and that there are many ways to help and to even cure that. But, but I didn't even know that that's what it was at the time. I just knew I didn't feel right. So I took the drugs, you know, so that I could feel right. And when the drugs wore off, then I didn't feel right. And so I took more drugs and my life started to spiral out of control and it got so bad. And I won't go into every single detail, but it got so bad that I got to a point where I lost my career. I'd been, you know, I'd been working in the medical field. I was a medic in the army. And so that's what I did after I got out too, was working as, you know, a medic. And anyway, I, I lost that job because I couldn't, I couldn't even get it together to show up to work anymore. And shortly after that, I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I had some drugs on me and I got arrested. So I caught my first charge. And you would think for a lot of people that would be enough, but it was only the beginning for me. It was not even close to enough. So, you know, I did what I had to do to get out of jail and I just went straight back to it. And I just hit it even harder because now I really don't care at all. And so I just kept going. And I, I couldn't even tell you, I don't even know how many times I actually got arrested, how many charges I ended out copying when it was all said and done. I mean, it, it was just crazy. But the last time that they brought me in, you know, I had been running from probation for years at this point. And every time they would, I would have police contact and they would bring me back in. You know, I would do whatever I had to do just long enough to get out. And then I would never even report to probation. And so at this point, the last time that they brought me in, you know, before the final time that I got arrested, I got 10 charges that were felony charges. And a lot of this happened to be because the person that I was with on this particular day, they ended out asking me to watch a backpack for them. And they were going to go inside of a convenience store and buy something. And so I sat there watching the backpack for them. But I, I had no idea that they'd been running cops a few minutes prior. And so the police pulled up, saw me with the backpack, 
they were looking for the, this guy that I'd been with. And before I knew it, they were taking me in the backpack because the backpack had a stolen firearm. It had drugs in it. It had, I mean, all kinds of things. And so at this point, I really just, I should have said, I really need to get it together. But even that wasn't enough for me. And so I spent many, many months in jail. And when I finally got out, you know, they had decided to put me in a prison divergent program because that was going to be the last chance that I was going to get. And of course I ran and went right back to the drugs. But at this point I, I had to go to the street and I lived on the street for three years and I was in Colorado at the time. And the winters are pretty brutal there. You know, they, they get a lot of negative temperatures, a lot of snow. And I, I mean, I was living outside during that time. And a lot of times I wouldn't even know if I was going to wake up the next morning because it was so cold outside and I didn't have decent clothes, you know, um, and I had to always move around and go one place to the next to make sure that people weren't stealing my stuff or, you know, that I wasn't getting caught and just always watching my back, worried about the police. And so long story short, I had a chance encounter with the cops on this one night. But the crazy thing is that I prayed and I hadn't talked to the creator who I call grandfather. I hadn't spoken to him. I don't, I couldn't tell you. I hadn't spoken to him for so long. And that night, you know, something in my heart said, man, I want to end it. I just want it to be done. And so I thought, you know, I got, I've got nothing. I don't know how to get out of this. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I lost my family. I lost my son. Um, I hadn't even spoken to any of them in over three years. And I just thought, I just want to die. And I really do. I really do. So something told me to pray. And so I did. And I just said, Grandfather, if you want anything else for me, then just please just help me figure out what that is and just show me what I'm supposed to do because I can't get out of this mess. I don't know what to do. I cannot get myself out of this. And then I went to go get a coffee at the 7-Eleven and the cops at this point know me real well. <laughs> they know my face. I've been in there. And so uh, I'm in the 7-Eleven and they roll up in the cruiser and see me in there. And that was it because I had warrants. So it was over and they took me in and I had to go to prison. But that was the beginning that I mean, when I say it was the beginning, a lot of people think, oh, that's the end. <laughs> no, my friend, <laughs> that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that was where I found my way again, because what I needed was a time out. Mm. I, I needed somewhere you know, where I was under the protection, you know, uh, of a place 
where I couldn't, I couldn't do the stuff I've been doing. And I had to get my mind right for long enough to start thinking straight. And, you know, the strangest thing was all through my addiction, some of the times that I was the most messed up, I would see this woman. And of course, at the time, I wrote it off. I thought, I'm just really high right now. I thought, you know, or I'm hallucinating this, you know, I need to go to bed or something. Um, but I would see this woman is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she had long, long hair and a long robe. And she had the most kind expression on her face. And it, even her air, hair and her eyes were this beautiful violet color and she was surrounded with light and wherever she walked these flowers would come behind her you know out of her steps and she just never stopped spinning she was always spinning so you know I didn't know that what I was seeing other people have seen her so when I got to prison I started reading these these books, I started just soaking up whatever I could find that were written by Indian people. And I started learning that there were other people who'd seen this woman. Mm. And that for me was the very first, um, that the very first gold nugget, I call it, you know, just this treasure that you find when you start to learn you're on the right path. And so later, when I'd gotten out of prison, you know, I told, I told an elder about her. And she just, she put her hands on my shoulders and she shook me. She said, don't you know who you saw, child? And I said, no, I don't know who it was. I said, I just know, you know, I know that I'm not the only one who's seen her. And she says, no, she says, that's, that's the forever spinning woman. And um, if anyone is listening right now who knows the tribe, that they, there's a tribe that has a name for her, and I know the name. It's Mualig Siakam. But I cannot remember what tribe it is. But they, they call her by that name, and it means forever spinning. And she's the first medicine woman. And I didn't know she was calling me. She was calling me to come out of that. And she was always, always, always there when I was in my illness. That was when I saw her just continuing to call me to come out of that. So that's a little bit about what happened to me during my, my addiction. Wow, that just gave me goosebumps when you were talking about uh, that forever spinning woman. <laughs> Man, how powerful. Man, there's a lot of a lot of similarities with you uh, when I was listening to you, especially with like getting in trouble with the law and spending <laughs> time in jail. It and, and and I told this to somebody else. It's oh my clinician that I see. I told her Every single time I've been put in jail or got in trouble with the law was because of alcohol and it's alcohol for me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it could be, you know, drugs for other people, um, alcohol for other people. But every single time 
it was because of uh, drinking. Right. Just like you, I would, you know, I would, I, I would do what I needed to get out. You know, I would, you know, pay the, yep. pay the, um, the, the bail or whatever. But right yeah. before I was getting out, I was thinking, okay, where, where am I going to go and get my first drink on the way home? You got to make those plans right away. <laughs> because I didn't want to feel what was coming into you know, the pressure and stuff on me. I didn't want to no deal way. with that, you know? Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. And um, when you when you decided, you know, that was your step, how did you proceed to um, find your sobriety or your recovery? Mm -hmm. Well, um, uh, so when I, when I got out of prison, I didn't keep, I didn't keep my, my time. I had a really brief relapse, but, but thank God it wasn't long because the reality of it is, you know, I, I had had enough. I had finally had enough. And so I did go back to, you know, to drinking and to using for a while after I got out. You know, I, I, I pretty much I used drugs the whole time I was on parole, but at least I didn't go back to the crime. And, um, you know, I remember thinking to myself, what, and again, it's that addict mindset, you know, where you push it as far as you possibly can. You know, you're going to do only the bare minimum of what you have to do. And and so I, that was kind of my mindset at first when I got out because I had a year of parole. And so when you're on parole, they can't really do anything else to you as long as you don't break the law. And so that was my mindset. I'm not going to break the law. They're not going to do anything to me. The worst they could do is just throw me into treatment, you know? And so I, you know, I pushed it like that for a little while, but toward the end of my parole, I started to think to myself, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And I had these, you know, I had these incredible epiphanies, you know, during the time I was locked up. And so I thought, I got to get my life together. <laughs> I really do. And so I started to try to think of a plan. Okay, so when they let me off parole, I can't stay here because if I stay here, I'm going to just be back around the same people. I'm going to keep using. They're not watching me anymore. Eventually, it's just going to lead down, you know, the same path. So I've got to get out of here and change my environment, change my people. And so that was when I made the decision that I was going to go to Washington State it's not Alaska, but it's about the closest that you could get, right? And so I wanted to get as close as close to Alaska as I could. And so I thought Washington State would be good. So when I got there, um, I'd been able to, to buy an RV. And so I bought this RV. It was an old RV, but it didn't have a lot of miles on it. So it was mechanically sound and... I drove it from Colorado to Washington and I went to this mountain to the middle of the Colville National Forest and 
I, I started living there. There's a lot of places out there where you can do that, <laughs> you know. And, and so I, I started to live there in the forest. And I had no idea when I got there that the mountain I was on was a medicine mountain. I didn't know that. I, it, I mean, I get chills just talking about it. So as I started doing the research on the place, and this by the time I've already been there for maybe six months, but some of the experiences that I was having there were so powerful that I started to try to find out, you know, what is this place? And I found out that um, at least 14 different tribes in the general area would go to that mountain to have their sacred salmon ceremonies. They would go to that mountain to do peaceful arbitration and negotiation. There was no warring or fighting of any kind that was allowed there because that was a place where people would go to settle their differences. And it was because it was a mountain filled with gold. And so, you know, the gold enhances your ability to communicate. And so with that, you know, I mean, a lot of the older Indian people remember, you know, the elders would say, never touch the Yellowstone. It, it's, it's bad. But what it's used for is not for money, but for to enhance communication. And it's interesting because that's what we use to this day in these cell phones and computers and all this stuff, because that's what it does. So they would go there to use the conductivity of the gold to help them understand each other better. And uh, there were so many wonderful things that I learned about the history of that mountain. And so when I started to realize that, it really brought me into a new level of spirituality. And this is when I, I started to really understand, you know, where I was. And I started to heal because, you know, there's there's a cure and the cure is fixing you know, what's what's wrong physically, but the healing is a thing of the spirit. And you can't be well unless you can heal. And so being on that mountain was what helped me to be able to heal. And the experiences I had were amazing. I talked a little bit about it, you know, in the post that I wrote, but the links who's the lynx is my totem. She brought her kittens to the, the right. I mean, the back steps and she, uh, she would come around and amazingly I had chickens and quail and she never touched them ever. Wow. Um, the, right. The cougars would walk through my yard. Now, mind you, if, if I had the, if I had an opportunity to feed the lynx, I would have considered it an honor, but she never touched them. Um, but that moccasin telegraph went crazy and they all started coming around. The cougars were walking through my yard sometimes and they would just saunter through. I, I mm. stood just feet, feet away from them. Um, you know, the, all the deer, the elk, the moose, they would come and just eat in my garden. 
and the ravens who I, I bonded with when I was just a child up there in Sitka. And they used to follow me <laughs> when I go play in the woods and we would talk to each other and the ravens would show up every single day. And my first, my first prayer to grandfather was that he would send the ravens so the ravens could show me where to pray. And so they, they would take me to the trees, the cedars and the junipers, and I would tie a red ribbon around them so that I could remember which trees they were because they were deep in the woods. And I would go and sit underneath them and pray. And there were times when, you know, I, I'm being completely honest. I looked up because I would hear the sound like like wings, wind rushing through feathers. And I would look up and there would be white feathers floating down from the sky. And I said, there, the angels are up there. You know, right above the trees, you know, somebody's listening to me. It was just, it was amazing. It was the most amazing experience. The eagles and the hawks, they would occasionally take some of, of my quail, but they would leave me so many feathers, so many feathers. Oh, I got wow. so many. I was able to make all kinds of regalia with them, more in that little amount of time than I ever got in my life. And, you know, things would things happen differently in my heart now as that mountain and that medicine there started to heal me. I would walk around in my bare feet. I would stand on the rocks and I could feel the power of my ancestors and those rocks underneath my feet. And I remember the, you know, the storms coming to the mountain. And for the first time, I could hear my grandfather's dancing for me in the sky. And, you know, the rain would crash down and I could feel the life in the water. It was the most amazing experience. And I, I became acquainted with everything on a personal level. The wind became a friend to me when I was lonely. Grandmother Moon, she taught me that I shine even when I don't feel whole. There were so many things that I learned that were of value to me while I was there that changed my life and healed me. But I finally got to a point where, as I studied more and more about the Indian way, I began to realize that nobody, nobody should live on a medicine mountain forever because in doing so, you can pull too much of that sacred power from the place. And so I finally got the healing that I needed and I realized that it was time to go. And so earlier this year, actually just about a month ago, my family and I, my son lives with me again now. He's back. He's been back with me for about three years. Um, I'm remarried to a big, strong, handsome Lenape Blackfeet man. So we decided to move out to North Carolina. And so we left the mountain and I made sure that I painted some rocks with some medicine wheels and water is life. And I put them in different places around 
the mountain so that everyone would always remember the time we had together there. And then we made our way back to the east, which, you know, it completes the circle. It's a natural progression to start over again, right? Wow. What an amazing story you have. It, it brings chills to my spine and my goose, goose pimples <laughs> all over. It's so powerful, so powerful. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I do have one more question for you. Oh, sure. What would you say to someone who is currently struggling? How would you encourage them? Wow, that's a wonderful question. The most important thing that I could tell you is you, you need to know and understand that the Creator's love is with you. The Creator's love is with you. The Creator makes you new in every single moment. And in every single moment gives you the opportunity to make better choices. So don't give up. Don't give up. You are born again every single morning. And so don't look at the mistakes that you made yesterday or maybe even a minute ago. Don't give up. Know that you are loved. I love you. And there are other people who do too. And because the Creator's love is with everyone, this is the best case for loving yourself. And it is the best case for loving others. So you're never alone. And if you can just know that and hold on, hold on, you can have another tomorrow. Wow. Thank you so much, Koyana. Rebecca, Yaku for sharing your story. Oh, go ahead and say that again. I talked over you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yakoki, that means thank you in Chakta. Oh, can I share one thing that I thought yeah. was very interesting? So, you know, they we talk about we, we, if we can speak our native tongue even one word every day, it's never going to die, right? And so I wanted to share with everyone which I just thought is interesting. The Choctaw word for sober is hopoksa. And that means, it literally means spiritually transformed. Wow. So, you know, when I love Indian, Indian language because they often have deeper meanings, right? Than, than the English words. So I thought that was very interesting. When you're sober, you are spiritually transformed. And the word kashofi is clean, and it means to erase from the spirit. So just, you know, something to hold on to for the people who are struggling. And as I always like to say, chihoi yakoki, which is thanks to the creator, and yakoki akana. Thank you, my friend, for having me. If you're a person who would like to share your story about mental health issues, sobriety or recovery, or know a person who'd like to share their own story, visit my website at www.anonymouseskimo.com and drop me a line. 
or leave me a voicemail so we can maybe bring hope to someone who is still struggling. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please visit my website at anonymouseskimo.com and click on the donate button. You can also support the podcast by clicking on the store button where you can get Anonymous Eskimo merch. While you're visiting my website, please take some time to rate this podcast and write a review. Listen next week when I have another strong, courageous person who is walking with us on this healing journey. Biura! Sober as sober 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 as